Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Life Stars Podcast with me, Pete Goodman. And today we are going to continue diving into some of your questions. And uh, first off, before we get started, I apologize for it's been a little bit of a delay. I try to do these every other week or so, but been summer and just a lot going on. So I've built up some questions. They've been kind of piled up in my inbox. So I'll try to get through a few today. Uh, but over the past few weeks, I've been uh, working on editing the Like Stars book that has kind of been the basis of why I've been started this whole podcast. So that's getting close and also started a class I'm teaching, which I've talked about in this podcast. So the videos for the New Testament survey that I've mentioned are almost done. They'll be out soon, so you can watch those as well. And uh, honestly, one of the biggest reasons that it's kind of been a delay leads me to the sponsor of this episode of the podcast, Poison Oak. Yep, I am dedicating this episode to Poison Oak, which uh, my kids and I took a little uh, little hike through the beautiful Southern California wilderness, and yeah, it didn't end well for me. Turns out I'm extremely allergic, but I just want to say this: I, I'm 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 making Poison Oak my uh, my sponsor because I learned a few good things, and I would explain this this way. Having Poison Oak reminded me of going to Israel the first time. You might say, why? Well, because the first time I went to Israel, it really helped me understand the world of the Bible. It like opened up scripture, my eyes, things I'd never seen before. And lying in bed in the middle of the night, wanting to uh, scratch every part of my body, I finally understood what it meant to want to shatter pottery and use shards to scratch off my skin. I, I get it. And seriously, <laughs> I, I, I now understand that if poison oak was essentially maybe what covered Job's entire body, uh, his entire body, and he never, never once actually thought about cursing God and just dying, well, kudos to him because I thought about it quite a bit. <laughs> and that was only like half my body. Anyway, uh, you know, what was me? Uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was it's been a fun couple of weeks, to say the least. And so Poison Oak, you're the sponsor of me finally getting back to podcasting and uh, sleeping. Uh, so great, wonderful. So with all that being said, uh, not too much silliness, but I want to dive in. And before I do, as I always say, uh, if you have a chance to like or review the podcast, please do so. It's always appreciated. And uh, if you have any questions, like I'm going to talk about today, shoot them my way, Pete at RiseCityChurch.com. You can also find me on social media, like Stars on Facebook, and uh, my name at social media at uh, Instagram. So, uh, with that, let's dive into some of your questions that uh, I've sort of been wanting to get to, but haven't had a chance to yet. The first one uh, comes from Brianna up in Idaho. I kind of sound like a, a radio DJ. This one's coming from Brianna. No. Uh, and she mailed me a great question, which is really, I mean, kind of deep, but I want to get into it. In 1 Corinthians 7, she's, she's writing to me, Paul says, a believing husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. Well, that's a pretty dense, difficult passage. And essentially her question was, what does this mean? Is every child sanctified uh, because of their parents? And really where she took the question, she was asking the question of like uh, age of accountability and is there is there an age at which the, the child is you know accountable to God? Uh, and does it matter if one parent is a believer and the other parent's not a believer? There's just a lot of great questions that came into this. Uh, and so I wanted to take a minute and just talk about that passage because I think it raises a lot of good 
uh, I don't know, just like how do we interpret the Bible? What are we reading? So let's talk about 1 Corinthians 7, what Paul is doing, and then get into this specific passage. And I want to start with what I think is such an important principle for us when we're reading the Bible. And I've said this before, and this is a good podcast to deal with this. Be careful building theology on one confusing verse. <laughs> Rather, look at the entire, all the scriptures together. And this is a good example of that. We, and we've even kind of mentioned this before. You know, there's a place where a similar passage that Paul talks about, uh, or the book of Acts actually talks about a, a jailer whose whole house is saved when he becomes a follower. And it's like, wait, so do all those people just become Christians, you know, without a choice? And here it almost is like, so wait, if if you're married to someone and are, do they become a Christian because you are? Is that what Paul is saying here? And I would say right off the bat, like, be careful with that because so much of the rest of Scripture seems to imply that following Jesus is a choice that we make, choosing to submit our lives to him and whatnot. And so I think it'd be dangerous to just jump to that in conclusion. I also think this question of the age of accountability, at what point is a human being responsible? And uh, if they were to die before that point, what happens to them? Which is a good question, but I really don't think that's what Paul is dealing with in this passage. So the bigger context of 1 Corinthians 7 is all about marriage and sex among the Christian community. Now that uh, Christ has come and, and we have the Spirit. And so what you see is there's the, among the early Christians, there were all these question marks about, okay, now that we're, uh, we're living in the age to come, this is it, right? The new heaven, new earth, is it here? Should we get married? Should we have children? Uh, should we, what if we're already married? Should we get divorced? <laughs> Some people were wrestling with whether or not uh, even, even sex and gender were parts of the old world and didn't matter anymore. And so there's all these questions and Jesus made comments about, you know, being like the angels and either marrying. Like, so what should we do? Should we just all become single and get divorced? Paul, help us out. And so this chapter is Paul, which he does in the entire book of 1 Corinthians, just answering different questions specifically now about marriage and family. And right off the bat, he wants to tell us, you know the command that you had from Jesus, which is Jesus said, divorce is not God's will. Um, don't, you know, like try to stay married. And so that's easy. So he, he right off the bat is like, look, if you've gotten married and you're both Christians, like don't get divorced, don't end your relationship. Like that's not God's will at all. Even in this, you know, age to come that we're now living in, like, no, no, you've made a commitment, stick with it. What about though, if, if I've made a commitment to Jesus, but my spouse hasn't and Paul's response to this is, well, we don't actually have a command from Jesus from that. He didn't actually talk about it, but let me take what he did say and offer what I think is the godly counsel and wisdom. And so Paul is sort of giving his opinion, which in this case, we, we, we believe that he's speaking God's will to us. He says, if your spouse, who's not a follower of Jesus, wants to leave and get out of the marriage, it's not your fault. You know, don't feel bad. Let them go. It's okay. However, if they want to stay married, you have no right to just divorce them. You can't say like, well, you're not a Christian. I'm going to divorce you. Paul's saying, no, don't, don't, don't do that. And so that's the, that's the general underlying theme of this passage is Paul's saying, if the person is wanting to still live with you and willing to make this work, like God hasn't given you permission just to divorce them. And then I think if you keep that in mind, he then goes on to give sort of a reason for it. And this is why you need context, because if you take this verse by itself, it does sound like Paul is saying, 
yeah, everyone will be saved if their spouse or their parent is saved. He's not talking about that. He's actually talking about why you shouldn't abandon your marriages, even if uh, your spouse isn't a believer. And so what I would say is Paul is offering hope. And just to be clear and use use of words, Paul doesn't say your unbelieving spouse will become a Christian, nor does he say your children will become Christians. He uses this word sanctified or holiness, which really is more about lifestyle, the way that you live, uh, being separate, things like that. And it's actually a lot of kind of Judaism language about going into the temple, things like that. And Paul's using it here. And I think what he's doing is he's offering a sense of hope. In chapter five, a few chapters earlier, he had spoken about, and he used a reference that Jesus had made about yeast being like put into bread and a little bit affects the whole thing. And in chapter five, he was talking about sin. He was talking about uh, a little bit of sin in your community can impact and affect everybody. And it's almost like now he's giving the flip side of it. A little bit of sin can impact everybody, but actually holiness can be yeast that works into the dough and brings everything. So I think what Paul is actually getting at is not stay married because your unbelieving spouse will be will be saved in the in, or get to heaven when they die. And I don't think I don't think that's the context of what he's saying. I think his point is there's something about your life that can rub off on your spouse. Uh, there's something about following Jesus that is infectious and, and a better life and stay married uh, because there's a chance that you can win them over. There's a chance that you can get them to see the goodness of God. So rather than just abandon them and say, I'm sorry, you're out of here, stay married, stay committed, live as a, as a witness and hope that maybe there's some part of goodness in God's light and life that they see and want to be a part of. And then I think what he's doing is he's doing the same thing with kids. He's saying something similar. And just think of this in perspective. Uh, this is very opposite of American culture. In the Roman Empire, if a husband and wife divorced, which they were both allowed to, in Jewish culture, only the husband could divorce, but in Rome, Roman culture, they both could, and these are Corinthians. If, you, if a woman divorced her husband, or a husband divorced the wife, the man almost always got the kids. He was the primary breadwinner, like it made like the, the male was in charge. So if a woman had become a Christian and said, I don't want to be with my husband because he's not a Christian, I'm gonna divorce him, she was actually probably giving up custody of her children as well. And for Paul to say, Look, you you and you do that, well, now your children are being raised in a pagan household. You've given up your ability to influence them. And even if it was the man, I think there's still something there about. Uh, choosing to divorce or, or, or walk away from your marriage isn't going to bring about goodness in your kids' lives. Try to make peace and make it work because ultimately they'll see something better. So again, I would argue that this is not a passage that we should be reading and saying, oh, look, 1 Corinthians 7 says that kids will be saved as long as their parents are. Questions about age of accountability, all those kind of, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Paul is speaking into uh, the question of whether or not I should leave my marriage. And he's saying, no, you shouldn't. As long, if, you're, if your spouse is willing to work on it, stick with it because good can come of it. You might influence your, your spouse and you're definitely going to influence your children for better or worse. If you leave and, they, and they're not in your home, they're not going to see Jesus. Uh, they're going to see divorce and brokenness and probably not even be around you enough. Stick with it and let holiness infuse even those who aren't believers yet to see that become. Does that make sense? Good question, good question. Uh, let's move on, let's do another one. Um, 
my friend Nate, who sends lots of questions. I love it. <laughs> Can't answer them all, unfortunately, but he sent me a few, and I, I think this is there's just a few good ones. And this one actually kind of builds on it. He asked me, uh, is it weird or problematic that priests, and he's probably speaking Catholicism, are not allowed to be married? Uh, is there any theological reason? And he says, you know, thinking that if it isn't good for a man to be alone and God made us a companion and marriage and devotion is a running theme throughout the Bible, why must priests stay single and celibate? Which is actually, I think, a really good question. And there are probably, I would say, most of you listening to this podcast likely don't come from Catholicism. Uh, maybe you do. Uh, maybe some of you have the roots in it, though. And maybe you've just wondered. So let me start by acknowledging that I am not Catholic, I wasn't raised in Catholicism, where this is probably the dominant belief system. Uh, but I do understand why they do it. I have looked into it. I've thought about it. I've asked questions about other, you know, why don't we? Why do they? So let me start by offering maybe a defense of why they do it. And then my thoughts about why I don't necessarily follow that. So generally speaking, Catholicism, Catholics, don't necessarily force priests to be celibate or, or, or not get married, have families um, from a strictly theological or scriptural point as much as maybe what we call a missiological. I know those are big words. The difference would be a scriptural or theological is like, here's a belief or a doctrine that tells me I can't do this. Missiological from mission says, this might be better for me to accomplish what God wants me to do. And that's really what it's rooted in. Uh, they see themselves as patterning their lives off of Jesus, who did not get married, didn't have kids, not because you weren't supposed to, um, but because he was on a mission. He wanted to be completely devoted to God. And he even said, Jesus said, some eunuchs, which a eunuch was a person who, uh, whether physically couldn't or chose not to have kids and be married and have sex, he said some chose that for the sake of the kingdom. And so Catholics sort of base their idea that we've chosen not to. And they also would look at Paul in this same chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians that we just talked about, where Paul actually says, now concerning marriage and concerning kids, Paul gives his opinion. And his opinion is, well, actually, there's something good about not being married. There's something good about being free to just focus on the kingdom and preaching. Uh, Paul says, when you're married and you have kids, that's a big responsibility. You need to commit to it and you need to give them. And so that leads into the previous question. Paul says, if you've gotten married, you need to stick with it. Don't, don't use the kingdom as uh, an excuse to get divorced or leave your family. But if you're single and you haven't gotten married yet, maybe consider that if God's called you to go around the world and preach, that it might be something that it would be a lot easier and less of a burden on a family and a marriage to uh, be single. And so Paul says, I'm glad that I'm single, but I, and this is the key. And this is like, that, that's where they're basing it on. Like Paul was committed to the mission so was Jesus, and so let's have our priests and our church leaders be as well. But Paul actually says in that same passage, he understands that not everyone has that, what he calls a gift. He literally says the ability to be single is a gift. And so what's difficult is he never at any point says that you have to be single to be in full-time vocational paid ministry. or He never says that at all. He says that there's benefits to it, 
But I think he also knows there's negative sides to it because we're human and, and we have hormones and all these kinds of things. And we also have an innate desire like loneliness and a desire to build a family. Like, so Paul is acknowledging that not everyone is called to this. There are pros and cons. Um, it's a special gift that he has, but not everybody has. And I think therein is really the rub for me. And if, if I were in a conversation with uh, a Catholic about this issue, this is probably where I would come. Not that I think that they're violating scripture or anything like that. It's a difference of opinion. But I would say forcing church leaders to be celibate is dangerous because you're taking what Paul says is a possible benefit or maybe a good thing if you have the gift and you're putting it on everybody. And I think we've seen real problems with that. We've seen people, number one, in, in Catholicism and in the history of the church, say, I guess I just can't be in ministry because I really want to get married and have a family. We've seen people leave ministry because they've fallen in love and want to marry somebody. And it's like, well, that's sad. That shouldn't have kept you from being a leader in God's church. We also see people who have wrestled with their sexuality because you know they're in this environment that they're not allowed to have any outlet for it. And maybe because the part of them that doesn't want to get in a heterosexual marriage, they say, well, maybe I'll become a priest where it's, I'm just completely celibate. And it's like rather than dealing with something that's going inside of them, they're trying to avoid it. And that's led to problems. All that being said, and I, and I don't want to make it about that, uh, every, every denom even denominations that pastors can get married struggle sexually with sin and things. So don't, don't let me put that as like, I'm blaming them. I'm just, I'm just saying there are issues there. I think that at the end of the day, what Jesus was doing for himself is what God had called him to. What Paul was doing for himself was what God had called him to. And a, a person who's getting into ministry, who feels called by God to do this for a living, should do it the way that God called them to do. If God has said, I want you to not get married and not have kids and just travel the world and preach everywhere you go and cool, great. Um, I don't feel called to that. I, I felt God <laughs> called me to marry my wife and um, I feel blessed with my kids and I'm glad that I have them. And I think there's a great benefit to, as a pastor, having that strength behind me and, and also having the experience to help others. So there's pros and cons, but I would say, generally speaking, I don't personally agree with a policy that says pastors shouldn't get married. I think if that's something that God has called you to individually or given you a gift for, you should obey God. But generally speaking, it, it, it feels like it hasn't been a good decision and I don't personally agree with it. That, and that's my opinion. Um, okay. All right, well, good question. Uh, this question, this next question kind of leads in, not leads into it, it was a funny way to say it, but the question of sex and sexuality, it, it, this is a little bit different. I know there's been a lot of discussions about human sex and sexuality, uh, but a question came in about God and God's gender or sexuality. And uh, I, this was also my friend Nate. He, he was talking with uh, someone that was kind of traveling around his neighborhood preaching and their, their idea or thought they were trying to convey was that God, uh, his gender should be considered fluid and, and all this kind of stuff. And the question came in was, well, wait, um, doesn't it look like scripture says that God is male and female? Is he both? Uh, the, there's the whole let us, let us make man in our image in Genesis. And this person was essentially arguing that uh, in order for the scriptures to make sense, there needs to be some kind of female side to all of this. You know, we're the children of God, we're made in his image, so there must be a male and a female. 
And uh, his question came into that, and I, I, apply, I replied fairly quickly just to clarify. But I thought this could be a good question to briefly unpack my short answer, but then look at a bigger answer as well. So let me start, and, and I want to kind of rabbit trail a little bit, but then we're going to come back to it. And I've, throughout the time that I've been doing this podcast, I'm going on almost a year now, I think this is episode 24 or 5 or something, I've talked a lot about the difference between core beliefs and sort of secondary beliefs. And what I mean by that is, I mean, there are some things or ideas that are so central and primary to what it means to be a Christian and what is true about God that moving away from those ideas is moving away from actually being a Christian. And then there are other ideas like uh, end times or should a priest get married <laughs> where they're like, well, we can disagree on these things and I'll still be in the same family. The traditional word that's been used, we don't use it a lot because it's kind of confusing, is the Greek word orthodox. Orthodox essentially means right or correct, orthodoxia, doxia, which is opinion or belief. So orthodox is right belief. Sometimes that's confusing because there's actually an entire branch of Christians, especially like in Eastern Europe, Russia area, that call themselves the Orthodox Church, which is fun, right? Like we're the, we're the ones with the right belief but we all kind of do that. It's okay. It's not my point. But traditionally, and on a grander scale, when theologians or pastors or people throw around the word orthodox, what they're basically saying is orthodoxy, these are the core things, like the creed, like the Nicene creed. Like if you don't believe these basic things, you're not, you're not in this. You're on the outside. Uh, you might think you're a Christian. You might call yourself a Christian, but you're not orthodox. You're not, you're not, uh, conforming to what is needs to be accepted as true, if that makes sense. So where this hits home a lot of times, and this isn't the question, so I'm not going to focus on it, uh, the question of Mormons. Are Mormons Christians? And the general response of Mormons is, well, yeah, absolutely. We think we, we, we think we are. But Orthodox Christianity says, actually, your beliefs do not align with the what is conforming to what is generally been accepted as true among Christians. Now, just to give you some comparison, the Eastern Europeans who call themselves Orthodox Christians are what we would call Orthodox Christians, but so are Catholics, and so are almost all Protestants. So whether you're a Lutheran or you know uh, an Eastern Orthodox or a Presbyterian, all of these people disagree over secondary issues, but they usually will almost always agree over Orthodox core issues. So hopefully that makes sense. So, so I like to use the word core issue or foundational issue, because it makes more sense to us. But orthodox is the traditional word. Orthodox Christianity means I, I, I hold to the basic truths that all Christians of every flavor have held to since the beginning of the church. So with all that being said, when you talk about something like God and gender, I would say, and, and don't freak out on me here, um, the question of whether God is neither male or female or both male or female, both of those things could probably fit in orthodoxy. And let me explain. Um, on the one hand, you could say, well, gender, male and female, is a is a animal, physical animal characteristic that God put inside of us, created us for in order to procreate, in order to have offspring, whether it's you know any kind of animal 
the entire animal kingdom is male and female or humans, which we are animals as well. And therefore it's part of, it's part of being an animal, not being a spirit, which God is. And so you could say, well, God is not, God is not gender. There's no male or female happening. On the other hand, you could say, well, but when God takes himself and his image and who he is and imparts it into humans, is it possible that some of the characteristics that are predominantly female in humans and some of the characteristics that are predominantly male in humans, both of those things exist in who God is? And my answer would be, yeah, I could see that. God is both a warrior, but he's also nurturing. On the other hand, uh, Joan of Arc was a warrior, and I know some men who are nurturing. So I don't know. That, that gets weird to me. So let me. here's my point. My point is the question of whether God is not gender at all or God actually contains both male and female characteristics, you could believe both of those things, either of those things, and still be orthodox. You're not, you're not outside the church. Personally, I don't think God has gender. I think that's part of his creative world, and he's not part of the creative world. He's something different, something other. But I'm not going to lose sleep if someone's like, no, no, I see male and female in God. Oh, okay, I get it. However, <laughs> the individual that my friend was interacting with is actually part of a community of faith that calls itself Christian, but if you look at their beliefs, is not orthodox. And most all, in my opinion, orthodox Christians should reject them completely. And the reason is their arguments about gender with God is not an argument about whether God contains signs of both gender, characteristics of both gender. Their argument is a literal reading that says, let us make God man in our image, that there are two gods that procreated in order to have offsprings of humans, which is just, no, <laughs> no, um, no. There are not two gods. Fundamental, core to Orthodox Christianity and Judaism, which we came out of, is called monotheism, mono for one, theism for God. There's only one God. Anyone who advocates a second God, a second deity, well, there's God the Father, but then there's also a female God. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit or something. No, that is not what Christians believe. Christians believe there's one God who reveals who is made in three. I know that's confusing. The Trinity is confusing. And we could have a whole other talk about that. But when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about a second God. We believe that who God is, is three persons in one. And so it's, there's not a female God, there's not a secondary God that the real God, you know, had some kind of spiritual intercourse with. No, no, no. There's only one God. There is no female God. Uh, and also, I would say anyone that wants to make Jesus a second God, like Jesus, like there's God the Father, but then Jesus the Son is a different second God. They're connected, but they're not the same. That's also not part of orthodoxy, and that's why Mormons are not concluded. Uh, so, I know that's a lot. I know that's a lot. My, and I know you're like, well, my, maybe your brain's spinning. The point I was making, and the biggest idea is this. We can argue over these secondary issues. Well, do you see signs of male and female in God, or is there no gender in God? Uh, you're, that's an old question. Any suggestion that there's another God, you've left Christianity, you've left orthodoxy. And if you talk to someone and interact with someone who's like, well, I'm a Christian, but I actually believe, you know, that there's three gods. It's like, no, that's not what the Trinity means. It's not how we think. Um, I, I think Jesus was like, sort of like a sub-god or a secondary god created by the real god. That's not Christianity. That's Arianism, and it's been rejected. It's not part of Orthodox Christianity. So we believe there's one god who 
in this amazing, uncomprehensible way exists in three persons, separate but equal, the same. That's weird. That's hard to understand. But it's different than having multiple gods who sort of just exist in different realms or something. Again, it's a lot. But I told him basically, like, look, just so you know, like, the person you talk to is not an Orthodox Christian. Uh, I think they're a border, and I really almost never say this. I'm very cautious with this word, but I'm saying that they're pretty close to a cult, and I would call them heretical, uh, which, again, I rarely say that. That's an accusation I do not throw on a lot. But if you believe in a second God, you are not an Orthodox Christian. Uh, you're something else. All right, that was a heavy one. Uh, I got time maybe for one more. This is, uh, let me see one more here. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, here we go. In general, is ignorance bliss? Ah, Voltaire, the famous uh, philosopher in his book, Candide said, ignorance is bliss. Uh, I was thinking about how we validate the Old Testament, quote unquote, because Jesus says so, which just to be clear is something that I said uh, in a class I taught about the Old Testament. Is that enough? Question mark. Um, if how we came to be, if how something came to be matters just as much as the why, does that mean something's wrong with us? Meaning if I'm constantly asking where it came from and is that, is that a problem? Uh, if we're compelled to seek truths about our existence, how much time and energy should we vote, devote to that? So I think the heart of this question is, is it wrong for me to not be able to accept easy answers? When you say, well, I just accept it because of this, this, but I can't do that. Is there something wrong with me? Should I just be like, no, being ignorant is good and accept it, which is really a great question. I mean, you're speaking my love language, asking that question. Uh, so I, I do a podcast <laughs> for free. I don't get paid for this. I mean, I guess you could say I'm, I'm doing it at work. I'm, I'm a pastor. But I sit here and record this and edit it and put it out for you, not because I'm getting anything out of it, I, I don't, I, just because I absolutely do not think that ignorance is good. Uh, I want to be available to answer your questions that you feel confused about. And the reason why I'm often able to is because I am somebody who absolutely does not want to be ignorant and has spent a good portion of my adult life asking questions, researching, trying to get answers. Um, and even now, I don't, I, don't know the, I don't know everything off the top of my head. Sometimes you guys send in a question, I do some research, I look into it. Um, and so I, I, I absolutely do not think ignorance is good. Do I think ignorance is bliss? I mean, wow, I, some of you guys, you're like, oh, Pete's gonna go into philosophy now. Um, when I when I was in college, I took an enlightenment course and a history course on, on did a lot of 16th, 17th, 18th century philosophers and things. And uh, I briefly mentioned it. Voltaire wrote a book called Candide, and Voltaire was a philosopher who his argument was basically Candide was looking for all the best possible world. He, he was he travels like what's the best way to live, and he goes to all these different places and asks all these different questions. And what's ironic is in the book catches you off guard. At the end, Candide basically uh, finds like a simple, quiet life where no one's asking existential questions. And he's like, this is it. This is it. Just, just I don't even want to think about all that. I, the hap happiness comes when I just stop thinking about these things I don't know the answer to. Ignorance is bliss. And there's a, there's a point that Voltaire's making which I understand. And the point is, like, sometimes you can just drive yourself crazy looking for answers and, and questioning everything and deconstructing everything. 
it doesn't often lead to goodness and happiness when everything has to be torn apart and everything is critiqued and questioned and skept, everything is skeptical. And I'm speaking not from research, I'm just speaking from experience. Like it hasn't made me happier necessarily when I've lived that way. And I don't know a lot of skeptics that I would call happy people. <laughs> Most of like the extreme skeptics who are always like, ah, are usually upset and unhappy. And that's kind of what Voltaire was saying. And Voltaire was a skeptic. He was a philosopher who was wrestling with the nature of reality in the world. So there's a sense in which I would say, I do understand where sometimes just kind of being like, you know what? I, I'm going to turn my brain off in this moment and just choose to seek joy instead. I think of Paul saying, whatever is lovely, whatever is noble, praiseworthy is good. Think on such things. Uh, and that's where like rejoicing and joyfulness comes from. However, there's a clearly a balance because where I, let me, let me give you a very specific example where I, Pete Goodman choose to find bliss and ignorance is probably with like news and like, current events in politics there was i've said this before on this podcast there was a time when i would just watch all the news channels i had you know my phone i would wake up and first thing i would do is see what happened on the news and all these kind of things and, I was, and it was making me very grumpy and angry and uh, anxious about life in the world and i came to a point of saying and again i know i've said this before but just to reiterate i came to a point in my own life of saying i'm not healthy constantly needing all this information about the world around me and everything that's wrong and everything that's broken. And when I see other people who it's like, you know, they're constantly on YouTube and looking at all the back channels and, oh, you know, the president's son and, you know, politics and all. And it's like, is this making your life better? Are, are you, are you happier? Are you healthier? Because you know all this stuff that you can't change anything about. So I think in some ways I can say like, you know, for me personally in that area, ignorance kind of is bliss. The difference though, and where I draw the line, and I'm just talking for myself, I'm not, I'm not speaking, I'm not saying what you should or shouldn't do. There are some things which, especially about God and, and following him and having faith, I don't think ignorance is like, ignorance can be an excuse for not having thought something through well. And let me explain that. I know people who have very strong opinions theologically. And when I push them on them because maybe I disagree with them and I say well what about this and what about this it's like I don't even think about that I don't I don't want to hear that I don't want to hear that I just I believe what I believe it's like well hold on a second if you hold a core belief about your life that starts to completely unravel when it's asked some basic (laughs) questions about logic or real history there's a problem and so I would say when it comes to my faith in Jesus I mean, the the foundations of it, the, the historical realities of it, uh, the logic, the the wisdom behind it, if those things don't work and they're 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 faulty, then I, I don't think I should be doing this. I think there's something wrong with this system. So I don't think being ignorant about the core ideas about our faith is healthy or good. I think we should study them. And when we have questions about theology, we have questions about the Bible, the Bible is our source of truth. So if we have questions about it, if there's confusion, let's talk about it. That's why I do this podcast, because I don't think being ignorant about the scriptures is good, um, because we're supposed to trust these. And like, yeah, so let's work through them. That being said, just because just because ignorance is good, or, or so just because ignorance is isn't good, and you should seek answers, doesn't mean you're always going to find them. Um, I think it's healthy and good to really research and ask questions and make sure we're trying to build a solid base. 
But there are some times that we're not, we're not going to have the answer. Um, how did God create the world? Man, we disagree, we argue, we fight about it. What about this? And I read Genesis this way, and I see this, and science says this, and even scientists don't agree. It's like you can ask the questions and you can go after it, but at the end of the day, none of us are going to know unless we stand face-to-face -face with Jesus and he tells us. Um, and with this specific issue that he brought up when I was teaching a class on the Old Testament, I did a class on the Torah here at my church, and I, I made the comment that... Um, the primary reason that we accept the Old Testament is because Jesus told us to, he accepted it. And that was like, well, isn't that just kind of accepting ignorance? Yes and no, yes and no. And I'll end with this. Just because most of you probably since podcast weren't part of my class, you didn't get a chance to explain it. When I say that I accept the Old Testament because of Jesus, that's not just throwing up my hands and being like, I just don't know, I'm ignorant. Like, to be clear, I believe that Jesus is the incarnate word of God made flesh. I believe that he is fully God. So if God speaks to humans and says, this also is my word, if, he, if God starts quoting from Genesis and Isaiah, then I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to trust that. You know, if, God, if Jesus showed up and said, Isaiah, he was, don't listen to him. He's silly. He, he didn't know who I was. I'd be like, I'm not listening to Isaiah. Uh, but if God shows up in the flesh and says, oh, I, Malachi and Isaiah and Psalms and Proverbs and all these things, like, yes, I, I, I'm with these. That gives me confidence because God is actually speaking to me and affirming it. On the same token, the reason why that even came up was because there's so many amazing and interesting ways that we can talk about the New Testament. And I've even, there's a bonus episode, uh, I think it was one of the last ones I posted here on Lexar's podcast, where I talked at my church about why we can trust the New Testament. Lots of stuff to talk to. We don't have a lot about the Old Testament. It doesn't exist. A lot, of the, a lot of the Old Testament was put together and written before we had a lot of other stuff to compare and, and keep and, and have copies of. So we don't have the same wealth and dearth of, of support and historical backing for the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in some ways, it's not a matter of just saying ignorance is bliss. It's a matter of saying we've asked a lot of questions, and unfortunately, we don't have the answers. There are no answers to these. They're not available to us. And so I now have to make a decision, not just put my fingers in my ear and go la, 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 but say, okay, I don't have answers to the questions that I'm asking it. Do I have any answers? Do I have any support that the Old Testament is reliable? Well, I have history and, and the use of it, but then I also have Jesus. And so that's enough for me. It's not ignorance is bliss. It's saying, no, no, the words of God coming out of Jesus's mouth are enough for me. And so I will look at the Old Testament as supported by God. Um, there are times and places where ignorance probably is better for you. Just I mean, turn it off. You don't, need, you don't need to know some of that stuff. But when it comes to understanding the scriptures and your faith, I don't think ignorance is good. I think we should seek truth and then be ready to trust God if we don't have the answers and they're just not available. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, that was fun. Got through some questions. I appreciate all of you. If you've got more, you can send me uh, any questions you have, Pete at riseteachers.com. Sometimes I don't necessarily, I'm like, ah, oh, this might not be a great podcast question. I might just reply to you an email with my own answer that way. I love doing that. You're never bothering me. You're never bothering me. If you have a question, you're like, this isn't a podcast. I'm just a question. I'm just wondering, shoot me an email. Uh, if you live in the San Diego area and you just want to talk or chat, um, there's, I have a friend, uh, hi, hi, Michael. Uh, Michael, every like 
what has it been, man? Like every month or so, he's like, hey, can we grab lunch? I have nine questions. And uh, yeah, we just sit at, at Chili's or something and we just talk about scriptures. I am open for that anytime. It's literally, I mean, that's why I'm doing this. And I know some of you are listening outside of San Diego area, but shoot me an email, ask me anything you want. I'm, I'm, I'm not Jesus, I'm not God myself, but I enjoy researching and I've spent a lot of time with it. Any way I can help you or help you work through the questions you have. That's why I'm doing this. Uh, I, I really, I enjoy it and I feel called to it. So however I can help, please reach out to me. You can also find me on social media, not to, you know, oh, follow Pete Goodman, but just, it's a good place to reach out to me. You can send me an instant message or anything um, and find other messages and teachings I've done. Uh, I've got a whole list of, uh, a whole library of teachings on different things at likestars.us. Uh, other topics I've covered from the stage, preaching things, check it out if you want. And uh, yeah. Look forward to more podcasts in the future and continuing to connect with all of you. Have a great week, everybody, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode of the Like Stars Podcast. Thanks. You consume me and I burn